Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. What do you get when you mix a sound engineer with the likes of, well, just uh, some little-known names like Barbara Streisand, Whitney Houston, Miles Davis, Simon and Garfunkel, the list goes on, Huey Lewis, Barry Manilow, Bette Midler, on and on and on, you get Bill Schnee. He is a world-renowned legend in the music business, having mixed so many incredible albums and met so many artists and a book that tells all about it. It's called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. So excited to bring uh, Bill on the program today. Actually, he's going to be on for two segments because I just couldn't pick which artists that I wanted to have him talk about more. It was all so exciting. So looking forward to that coming up. And we want to thank Balance of Nature, Fruits and Veggies in a Capsule for powering the program with good nutrition always every week here on the way home fruits and vegetables to the tune of 32 different ones that have been chosen by dr douglas howard to give you the greatest impact for your body and your body's needs and it does more than just help your body fruits and vegetables and good nutrition helps your mind as well it helps your mental clarity it helps your peace of mind there is so much that it does it boosts your immune system and just keeps you sharp and energetic balance of nature is a product that there is not another one like it out there. There are some that are trying, but they don't get close because they cut corners. They don't just have fruits and vegetables. They have other stuff that's been manipulated in a laboratory, for example, but not balance of nature. All they have is produce. They just have food and it's a hundred percent, uh, chemical free and or uh, f- just full of everything that you need minus anything that could be bad for you. And what have they done? They've taken the water out. They've left 100% of the nutrition in, and then they've pulverized it into these capsules. And when you take three and three a day, you're getting 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. How is that even possible? It is. And it's an amazing way to do it. I feel so much better knowing that my body is getting 10 servings of fruits and vegetables, especially like, you know, on weekends, like today, when I tend to say, well, you know, it's the weekend, so I'm not going to think about what I eat so much and kind of eat some of my favorite foods that aren't so healthy. But when I take balance of nature, I have that incredible peace of mind. At least I got my nutrition in today. So you can do it as well by ordering balance of nature on their website, balanceofnature.com, balanceofnature.com. And make sure that you put my name into the promo code because you're going to get 35% off and free shipping when you do so. Laura into the promo code does that for you. You can also call them super easy number. If you don't have a computer for any reason on you, you can call them up 800-2468-751, 800-2468-751. And remember to tell the person on the phone that you're putting Laura into the promo code. When we come back, Bill Schnee, a legend and also chairman at the board recording the soundtrack of a generation. Wait till you hear his stories. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Way Home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Up on the hill, people never stand. 
when I hear that music, I just absolutely get goosebumps. All these literally, like four decades later, my favorite band in the entire world is Steely Dan. And my favorite album of all time is Gaucho. And it just so happens that I have a guest on with us today who not only helped engineer or who engineered those albums, but literally he has received over 125 golden platinum records, more than 50 top 20 singles, all of which he engineered to perfection and a beautiful book all about his experiences. Bill Schnee wrote Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. I have been waiting with bated breath for this conversation. Bill Schnee, thank you so much for joining us on the way home. Great. Well, thank you for having me. This is, I, I, I'm just like, I feel like I can't even imagine somebody with not only your experience and your, uh, all the accolades that you've garnered over the years, but the, the musicians that you got to meet along the way and turn their music into I really, truly, the soundtrack of a generation is exactly right. The what you named aptly uh, said in the title of the book. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in music engineering? Was it a long time ago? <laughs> yes. Let's put it this way. It was 1960 uh, something or other. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think I, I consider 1969 the beginning of my professional career. Um, and uh, I was in a band. And we got signed right out of high school. That was a few years earlier. Uh, right as I graduated uh, high school, we got signed and uh, to Decca Records. And we went in and cut four sides. And in those days, that's how the deals were structured with a group. You uh, cut four sides. They put out a couple of singles. If something hit great, you'd run in and cut six more and you'd have an album. And uh, unfortunately, or probably maybe fortunately, there was no L.A. Teens album. Yeah, so we didn't do too great. Uh, we didn't, you know, chart too much. But uh, then we got a second record deal, and uh, it was working with this other producer, engineer, Richie Podler, that I, I went into the studio for the first playback with him. And the sound that came out of the speakers moved me emotionally in a way that listening in when we worked with, when we recorded for Decca, we were recording at the Capitol Tower and United Western, two of the best studios then and now in Hollywood. Uh, but somehow in Richie Podler's funky little studio, uh, the sound moved me emotionally, so much so that I pointed at all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? And he went, no, I'm teaching Bill Cooper here. You go out and do another take. But that was the aha moment, as I call it, that set me on my life's path. How much longer after that that you decided to switch gears or, or do, do you remain a musician to this day or have you totally did you totally transfer your life into the life of a, an engineer? Yeah, you know, I, my background, in, I mean, I started on trumpet, then I went to sax, then I took piano lessons and that's what I was playing in the group was playing organ. Um, but uh, I, I became an engineer um, so quickly. I sort of popped successfully so quickly that I found myself working with, you know, the, the, some of the best musicians in Hollywood. And I just, I got totally intimidated and, and kind of gave it up. And the console became my instrument. Wow. And boy, did it ever. I love the cover of the book of Chairman at the Board, uh, recording the soundtrack of a generation by Bill Schnee. It full of stories, anecdotes of the most famous, renowned musicians and singers 
I would say it says here of a generation, I would say of three generations, because really, <laughs> like my daughter um, is just as into Steely Dan as as I am. And and so it, it's I think it's way more than just a generation. But uh, I, I don't even know where to start because I'm just dying to hear uh, some of the anecdotes about these incredible musicians. Well, here, Why don't you tell us some? Let, yeah. yeah, let's start with may as well start with Steely Dan. So um, uh, Gary Katz was the producer of Steely Dan, and he called me one day and said, would you like to record the next uh, album with the group? And I said, let me think about it. Yes, I would like to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, it's going to be a revolving door of drummers, so you're going to have to be getting a new drum sound every few days. And I said, that's fine. So we started doing, uh, uh, we did the album. And uh, I think one of the in- most interesting stories about that is they brought in Steve Gadd. You know, he was this drummer. I'm, I'm, I, I fool around on drums. I'm very big on drums and pop music. I've, I've always considered it to be the backbone of pop and R&B is the groove, which starts with the drums and bass. So I was very excited. I had heard 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover that Steve Gadd played on, Paul Simon's great Oh, and record. what a drum. Yeah, I can even hear it in my mind yeah. right now. Go ahead. So. Yeah. So I was very excited to work with him and he came in and we cut two, two tracks, two songs the first day. And I was, I was just blown away. And I called a longtime good friend and incredible producer that I did lots and lots of work with from Barbara Streisand to Carly Simon to Pointer Sisters, uh, uh, Art Garfunkel, Richard Perry. And I said, Richard, you know who Steve Gadd is? And oh, of course I said, I'm, I'm recording him and he's a monster. And he said, well, can I, can I have a session with him? I said, well, we're, he's only here tomorrow and he's leaving the next day. Uh, we don't start until two. So I suppose you could squeeze in something in the morning. Let me ask. So I called Gary Katz, the producer. And Gary was, a uh, you know, highly respectful of Richard Perry, as he should be. And uh, but he knew Richard's maniacal ways. Richard would take, you know, take hours getting a track sometime. And he said, but you got to be out at one o'clock. We started to, if you're not out, the boys will kill me for letting you do this. Mm-hmm. I said, don't worry, I'll turn the monitor off. So <clears throat> the next morning, in came Richard with the artist he was producing, Leo Sayer. Mm-hmm. And we cut You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, number one record from Leo's uh, album. And go back now, it, it, since you know the groove so much on uh, 50 Ways, go back and listen to that song and you're going to hear Steve Gadd immediately with his drag snare on that. Yeah. And so we cut we cut that, in, which was a world record for Richard Perry. We did it in two, two hours and 35 minutes. So naturally, Richard, being the pusher that he was, said, uh, can we do another one? I said, Richard, we've got 25 minutes and I've got to <laughs> turn it off. And he said, OK, OK. So he rushed out and gave him another song, and we cut the song uh, How Much Love, which was the third single so <laughs> off of that album. And uh, that afternoon, I cut the song Asia. I guess you could say that was a pretty good day in the studio. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. I have that Leo Sayer album, and I have Asia. Uh that's just incredible. So that was just like the day in the life of Bill Schnee, uh, my guest right now on the way home, who has written a great book, Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. And boy, let me tell you, I can't even imagine. I'm going to have to have you back on the show at least 10 times to get some <laughs> of these stories out because it's just so fascinating. So you cut Asia in the afternoon. At that time, Steely Dan, 
they didn't start touring until literally like mid 2000s or something, if I recall, or early 2000s. They were known as like the premier studio band. They didn't tour and they did it. So so they were really judged and based on how incredible their studio sessions were. And and boy, oh boy, for you to be on Asia, that album that really catapulted them, because even though they had a great career before that, I think it was Asia uh, that did it for them. For me, my personal favorite is is Gaucho. It's a little more um, obscure than, than Asia. Asia was like a super pop sensation, but um, that must have been incredible. So tell us a little bit about Donald Fagan. I got to meet him once at a comedy show. Todd Rundgren's wife was doing stand-up comedy in, on the Lower East Side in New York, so I got to meet uh, Donald Fagan outside, and I, I was so freaking Starstruck, starstruck. I just couldn't, I could like now, I could barely even talk. What was he like? And also, of course, uh, beloved um, uh, bass player that just passed away like a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, Walter yeah, Becker. Walter Becker. And it's such a bummer because I just, I could see, I've seen them like 10 times in concert now. Tell us what the, the session with of Asia was like. Well, uh, the interesting thing is, that was a very yeah you were right that was the first uh, platinum record uh and uh, it was very different than what they had done in the past and in, in the past they uh had you know it was a mixed bag of musicians with them and whatnot but on asia uh, sessions it was all studio musicians and it they were very it was a no drug zone for that that might have also been a little unusual it was a no drug zone, at least on the basic tracks, which is what I did. And they, uh, they were very, very orderly sessions. And we started at two, like I said earlier, and we ended early in the evening. It was no craziness going all into the night and whatnot. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it was just very different than anything they had ever done. And because I, I had been concerned when I was first asked to do it, because I had talked to like Jeff Beccaro, Michael Marty and some of my musician friends that had played on the previous records. And they told me about their maniacal ways in the studio looking for perfection. And I, I shoot from the hip pretty quickly. I like to move quick. My creativity, you know, goes when, with movement. And I don't you know, I don't like to sit around and look under a microscope to music. So. I was concerned about it, but my gosh, it, it, it was as good as any tracking sessions I've ever done. And, and so what's interesting about that is the record comes out and has all the success that it has. And they go to do the next record and they change everything up, starting with recording it in New York. Mm. And, and, the, 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 and that album was plagued with problems, just plagued. I mean, Which Donald, one, Gaucho? Yeah, Gaucho. Walter, Walter... <laughs> Bless his heart. Walter got hit by a taxi cab crossing the street. Uh, worse yet, his girlfriend died of an overdose. And perhaps, uh, perhaps one of the other terrible things that happened is there was a, a song, what they considered one of their best songs. The second engineer accidentally erased three quarters of it. And when I was told when Donald came in the studio, and and he was told he didn't respond. He just turned around and walked out. And I know on an interview that he did subsequent to that, he said it was the worst day in their recording life. And they tried to recut that song twice and could never get it. Oh, and, what was uh, it? Do you remember uh, the name of it? Uh, yes. Uh, 
second arrangement. Okay. And, and so, and the funniest thing is the only reason I did nothing on the Gaucho album. The only reason my name is on there is because after they, you know, there were a lot of other problems as well, but especially after losing the second arrangement and trying and not getting it back, they basically kind of gave up and they pulled out a song that I recorded on Asia a few years earlier and finished it off. And that's the closing song on the album, Third World Man. So that's a leftover Steve Gad track from those two days that I mentioned earlier that we did him. A very interesting uh, story about that now, about uh, second arrangement is, so I moved to Nashville four years ago. And uh, it's been a great move for me. And I've been thrilled with the level of musicianship here and whatnot. And it's a much more vibrant recording community than Los Angeles is, very sad to say. But so there's some of the really good musicians here in town that knew that song decided to record it just for heck and, you know, put it up on YouTube because there are some on YouTube. You can find uh, a couple of different copies of of Steely's version as much as they never got to finish it, unfortunately. So it's not finished. Uh, The one I heard, I know, is not a final vocal on Donald's part, but whatever. Uh, But uh, but they could hear the song, so they got the they recorded the song, and they got Michael O'Mardian, who played on on the song Asia. He played on some of the Asia tracks, uh, Asia album tracks, including the song Asia there. And uh, they got Michael to play piano on it. He lives here for many years, and uh, they asked me if I would mix it, and I said sure. So I mixed it, and I got the the files, and I mixed it, and oh my gosh, it's really, really, really good. I couldn't believe it. And I kept thinking as I was mixing it, what would Donald think of it? Mm-hmm. And um, so I, um, I I finished it up and they were all thrilled with the mix. And then just four days ago, well, no, a little more, Friday, a week from tomorrow, Friday, um, uh, a, a guy that I barely know, someone that read the book and wrote me a letter, and you know, I, I really loved your book and I wrote it back, thanked him, and that was that, wrote me an, an email and he said, there's an interview that Donald did yesterday, a week ago today, actually, that he did yesterday and listen to the end of it. He talks about you. So I went to the I listened to the interview and I knew the interviewer. He's been trying to get to, uh, me to interview with him. And he mentions Bill Schnee and Donald said, oh, how is he? And he said, he's doing good. And then Donald said something that really touched me in a meaningful way. He said, Bill is the best sound gen- engineer we ever worked with. And I thought at that point, oh, my gosh, that settles it. I've got to to reach out to him. As they say, you can um, die and go to heaven, but don't do that now. (laughs) (laughs) So I I sent him an email telling him uh, his drummer, Keith Kerlock, that's been playing with with them, uh, lives here in Nashville also, speaking of the great musicians that live here. And so I got, uh, I didn't have a phone number. I called Keith and he, he didn't have one either. He said, but I got his email. So I got the email. I wrote him, told him what I'd been doing and whatnot and told him about the song and sent it to him. And he wrote back and said, uh, you know, I said, good to hear from you. Uh, the song sounds great. Whoever did it, go ahead and release it. Cause I had mentioned that the, because I had freaked out because, because the song had never been released. You actually have to have permission from the writer and right. so 
he the the writer gave us permission <laughs> so it'll be coming out uh on on youtube for sure and hopefully some other platforms it's so good that i'm trying to get something made out of it so uh -huh. that it can get on on apple and spotify and everywhere so you basically got the okay from donald himself yeah exactly <laughs> wow and what's the name of it so we can come look for it second arrangement Second arrangement. So it's basically you took whatever you had of what they had done and you no, embellished. No, no, no. 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 These, these musicians in Nashville re-recorded it completely from scratch. Oh, completely. So it's As nothing, it was to do with, nothing to do with Steely Dan. It's just an okay. unreleased Steely Dan song. Okay. Decided okay. to do a good version because it's a really good song. And especially uh, with Michael O'Marty and playing piano, it, it, it sounds it. It sounds to me like it's right off of Asia, the Asia album. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's a, so it's it's completely different than anything you've heard, but very familiar sounding from that era. It's just so exciting. And this is just one of hundreds of incredible stories that Phil Schnee has. Chairman at the Board is his beautiful book, uh, recording the soundtrack of a generation. And when we say a generation, uh, like I meant, I said, I think it's more than one generation. It's a few. And let's just go through some of the names, some of the people you've worked with. I have a list in front of me here. It, it would take up the rest of the show to do it. But just just for the heck of it, how about Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon, like you said, Ringo Starr um, with all the Beatles. Uh, like you said, uh, the Pointer Sisters, Chicago, Dire Straits, Miles Davis, Natalie Cole, Marvin Gaye, the Jacksons, Pablo Cruz, George Benson, Aaron Neville. Barry Manilow, Bette Midler, Amy Grant, Joe Sample, Rod Stewart, Whitney Houston. Holy mackerel. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. But you have not only met these people and heard them sing in a studio, but you got to create and engineer uh, the, the beautiful tracks in, in, in such a way. So to, to tell us, because we have about five more minutes before we go to a break, because we're going to have you back after the break, because we just want to hear more stories. Tell us some of your other super memorable uh, sessions that you, you recall and your favorites. Well, a lot of people's favorite. Uh, I think it's probably my favorite chapter in the book because it's such a cool story. Oh, so I shouldn't tell it because they won't want a book. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, the first studio that I worked in, you know, you, you cut your teeth in, in under not very good circumstances was the studio in Hollywood. It wasn't very good. We never had good uh, people recording there and we didn't have people very often at that. Uh, and, uh, but one day Motown records called and said, uh, do you have, uh, this Thursday open. And I said, yes, this Thursday and a lot of other Thursdays, actually, how can I help you? And he said, mm -hmm. well, we need to do some background vocals on the Jackson five. <laughs> and, uh, I said, okay, great. Cause I was, I've always been a big fan of R and B. I think it's probably my favorite genre of music, old school R and B and soul music. Me and I, so I bought their first record. They were working on the second one. And so, uh, I said, sure. And he said, okay, we're bringing our own engineer. So, okay. So I was waiting uh, on Thursday, couldn't, you know, counting, watching the clock tick like in high school. And uh, all of a sudden up pulls a green, a Conaline van with the Jacksons, Gary, Indiana written on the side and Papa Joe hopped out, opened up the back door and they all popped out <laughs> all, all the way down to Michael. They went in and I set up, uh, the engineer came and I set him up, got the headphones set up and showed him everything that was going on. And then I had to uh, basically sit out in the foyer and 
uh, babysit, if you will, a 10-year-old Michael. And so I was sitting there with him, and he was an animated little young kid. And he said, you know, I, I said, you know, I bought your first record. And he went, oh, thank you. I, he ne- <laughs> his voice never did change. And I said, um, uh, you know, I really like it. And uh, we, I talked to him about a couple of the songs on it and whatnot. And he was just, you know, shuffling his feet and looking around and whatnot. And he just wasn't very focused. You know, and I finally I said, Michael, do you have any idea what's going on? Oh, I told him, you guys are going to be huge stars. I'm convinced of it. And so I said, do you have any idea what's going on? And he went, not really. <laughs> so um, then about, uh, what did we figure, 11 years later, uh, there the Jackson's manager then called me up and said, we're wanting to do a, a live album with the Jacksons. They're going to go on the road and we want to do a live album and like you to come and do it. So I worked out everything with their manager. Uh, we decided to do it in the Northeast because to, when you record uh, concerts like that, th- there's a recording truck, which is basically a control room on wheels that has to follow them around. So in the Northeast, there were a lot of, there were enough cities close together that it would work and it worked that it would work for the truck and it worked out on the concert tour because it was more than halfway through the concert uh, tour where they would all be ready to rock and roll they were in good shape well you know well seasoned so uh they flew me to atlanta to see a show first i sat in the audience and watched an unbelievable show and then the next morning, uh, they picked me up to, and took me to the airport to fly to the Northeast, wherever we started. And there was a private lounge that they had reserved for the guys. And I walked into the lounge, and on one side, sitting on the floor, were four of the brothers. And on the other side, sitting in a chair, was Michael. And I looked at the two, uh, uh, two sides, and I went, hmm. And I went over and plopped myself down next to Michael. Introduced my hi, Michael. I'm Bill Schnee. I'm going to be recording you guys on the tour. And so on. And then I said, do you happen to recall a long time ago, you were on your second album one day in a studio in in Hollywood where your brothers were doing backgrounds and you sat out and talked to me. He didn't remember the two oldest brothers remembered that day in the studio, but he didn't remember. And I told him, you know, we sat out there and talked. I told you how much I loved your album and everything. And he's smiling and shaking his head. And and I said, and, and I asked you if you had any idea what was going on. And, and you said you really didn't. And I said, well, Michael, do you know what's happening now? And he just gave me a very wry smile. <laughs> wow. So. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that, that that you had those, you know, private moments with really, truly the, the all-time great of the, the entire world. Love Michael Jackson. It wasn't just American phenomenon. The entire world loved Michael Jackson. Well, on that night, we're going to take a short break, but I want to know what song that you did with the Jacksons um, or, you know, that you can remember that was one of your favorites that you worked on. Uh, from Well, all I did, I mean, I recorded and mixed that live album. It's called the Jacksons live. And it basically was, it was kind of silly in one sense because he had just done off the wall on his own. And so now here it was a double album at that back in the days of LPs it was a double album and there was really nothing new on it. It was their old Jackson's hits and some of the off the wall stuff. So there were no singles and whatnot, mm-hmm. but uh, so that, there, you know, there wasn't any singles that you would know from that. All right. Well, let's just pick speaking of off the wall. How about rock with you? You like that one? Sure. So do I. I think the whole world does. 
Michael Jackson, a little bit of rock with you. When we come back, Bill Schnee, great book that he's written, chairman at the board, recording the soundtrack of a generation, and boy, did he ever. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Way Home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. beyond myself with excitement about this interview today because I've been waiting for it for quite a while and I have a feeling this won't be the last time we'll do this because Bill Schnee is so renowned in the music business um, having mastered and and run the board for so many sessions of the greatest musicians of all times and uh, truly uh, some of the most beloved and popular that there are. I'm just grateful. He's known as a legend in the business, and he's written a fabulous book that has so many of these anecdotes and stories about the biggest stars, everyone from Miles Davis to the Jackson Five to uh, George Benson and Barbara Streisand, every and Dire Straits, millions and millions in between. He can't even keep up with them all. And all the times he's been nominated, at least eleven times um, for best engineered albums, and also um, has won uh, for his uh, Steely Dan albums, Asia and Gaucho, both. Bill Schnee, chairman of the board, recording the soundtrack of a generation is the book. And you just heard a little bit of Leo Sayre. He was in on that session and helped to engineer that. And uh, you make me feel like dancing. I, I bet, how how do you, Bill Schnee, sit in a session with like the Jacksons or Boz Skaggs or Huey Lewis or anybody and not dance? How do you sit there and just remain quiet at the board? <laughs> Oh well, I, I I move around a lot, uh, you know, more than a lot, of, more than a lot of engineers I know. I mean, I will I will uh, definitely be moving around. Dancing isn't my thing, but uh, for sure. But well, in terms just of as well, the- because, yeah, because you have to sit there and you've got to make everything sound like perfection as you have done and on, on truly some of all of everybody's most favorite albums in the world. Let's talk about. A couple of your divas, we talked about uh, the Jacksons before and Leo Sayre and, and Steely Dan. But let's talk about some of the divas. Whitney Houston, Barbara Streisand, uh, Carly Simon. Yeah, give us some, some, give us some stories on, on some of those sessions. What were they like? Uh, well, phenomenal. Early, very early, early on in my career was Barbara Streisand. 
at the first time. Uh, I've worked with her several times since then, but this was right in the beginning, 1970. And uh, uh, I had only worked with uh, some, I came out of a rock studio to go when I got my big break from Clive Davis to work at CBS. And I ended up uh, engineering Barbara Streisand and uh, I'd never heard anyone that could sing like that at that point. And that's when I realized, you know, that what, what you get, uh, the incredible private concert that you end up getting uh, when, as an engineer uh, sitting there while they're putting their vocals on. Uh, the private concert might even include swearing once in a while when they didn't get what they wanted. Right. But she, was, she was unbelievably uh, sweet and, and uh, just a, a really kind, sweet person, very generous. And I used to, um, <clears throat> the producer asked me to follow her home in Beverly Hills because we, we ended many times like at one in the morning so that she didn't drive home alone. And uh, she had a uh, I'm a car guy. And so I know that she had a, it was a black 57 T bird back then. And uh, uh, when I worked on it uh, quite a few years later, uh, I, I was, it was the time when you could mix. She had, we had the technology where she could stay at home and listen on her own home speakers at the mix as it was going down. And so uh, I called when I had the mix ready and she got on the phone and we started chatting before we played the mix. And I, I said, you remember when I would drive, you know, follow you home every night when you had your black T-bird? She said, yeah, you know, when that thing got stolen, I was so upset when someone stole it. Oh. But all that to say, she was just a very sweet and kind person. Yeah. Um, just the, 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 an iconic voice. Like I've never heard anybody really have a voice like hers again. But do tell us about Whitney Houston as well, because she was absolutely brilliant. Right. Well, um, I did one of my favorite R&B artists is a guy named Teddy Pendergrass. I love and him. Incredibly powerful voice, full of emotion. Uh, and one that I will always use as an example. All You know, we do this thing today, which I don't I cannot believe that everyone's doing it perfecting the vocal by the because tech, technically we have the ability to change the pitch of a vocal we can add vibrato we can take vibrato away but mostly it's the singing an absolute perfect pitch and if that was a problem there were a lot of artists including teddy that never would have had a career uh, i just don't think the pub the public doesn't care about perfect pitch but a perfect pitch doesn't sell emotion is what will sell and teddy was loaded with it well he had an unfortunate accident where he became a quadriplegic and I was working on mixing the first album he did after his accident. And the producer mentioned that he was going to another studio to record a duet that was on the album. And when he came back, I said, how did it go? And he said, Oh my gosh, this girl is uh, drop dead gorgeous and sings like a bird. And I said, what's her name? He said, Whitney Houston. Of course, no one had ever heard of her, but that song, that duet um, with Teddy, was on both albums, Teddy's album that I finished and then on her uh, first album, which I mixed several other hits off of as well. Um, and then down the road a piece, uh, uh, the, uh, she did her first movie, The Bodyguard, and all the songs on there on Bodyguard were really records that had been done in the studio where they pretended they were doing them live. But Whitney wanted the last song, uh, of the, the closing song of the album, uh, which was a ballad, uh, she didn't want to try to lip sync that because the cam- she knew the camera was going to be right in her face and ballads are tough to lip sync anyway because there's not as much rhythm to hide behind. So she wanted to do it live. So uh, I was asked to get a 
recording truck and go to the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami where they were filming some of the scenes. And that, that great scene, if anyone remembers that last scene when she's on the, in front of a crowd of 25,000 people, uh, really the stage was a very small stage in a multi-purpose room and where there were 25 people in the crew. And uh, the, the interesting part about that, I thought it was incredibly interesting, was that here by that point in her career, she had sung in front of literally many, many times, 20, 25,000, sometimes 100,000 festival things and whatnot. And here in front of this little teeny crew of 40 people, 25 people, what did I say, 40, 25 people, she was nervous. She was definitely nervous. The first couple of takes were, you could just see that she was nervous. And so, you know, she took, we took a break and she shook it off and whatnot. And, uh, but boy, when take five came, the hair, not just on the back of my neck, when she hit that and I, that powerful and I, mm-hmm. I'm sure mine was not the only neck that the hair went straight up. And, just uh, thinking yeah. about it, I get goosebumps when she does that. Oh, incredible. So powerful. So proud. Was she a sweet person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really, really sweet. And I, I want to finish off the funny. And of course, you know, it was absolutely amazing. And but in true movie production form, the director said that was incredible. Let's just do one more for protection. <laughs> okay. And then what? Was because she, that's did what she they not- do, and it yeah. was it, it was just as good as five. I don't wow. know which I don't know which one they used to be honest, but yeah, I I, I think that uh, that would have been a sin to, to to ever mess you know mechanically with someone's pitch or voice or anything, um, because you know sometimes it's just more powerful even if it's not perfect because it's right. real. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just really could go on forever with you, Bill Schnee. He's written a book called Chairman at the Board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. He has a million and one amazing stories about working with the world's greatest stars of all times. And I I just I go through the list here and I'm like, oh, I, let's talk about Pablo Cruz. Let's talk about Miles Davis. They're all such different. I mean, I love how you... You didn't. You said you love R and B, and that's my favorite as well. But you've got, you have rock and rollers here. You have, um, you know, jazz artists. So you know, Miles, Miles Davis, real very, quick. I've been very, very fortunate to have success in every every genre. Uh, I love all kinds of music. R, old R and B may be my favorite, but I mean, I love all kind. I'm a pop junkie. On the other hand, you know, what can I? Songs like "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing." Um, so I've, I've had a very blessed career. There's no question about that. Give me, uh, two words for Miles Davis. Uh, uh, two words, uh, you know, virtuoso clearly is one of them. Trendsetter is another, I mean, that's way before my time, but uh, I did, uh, I mixed two albums that were once again, it was kind of a trend setting because the album Tutu was, uh, was definitely different because it wasn't, it was all with uh, programmed instruments. Um, and w- you know, which was, uh, it was, there was, the reviews were very mixed on that. Some of the jazz community thought it was absolutely ridiculous and others thought he was breaking new ground once again. Uh, and it, that it was really cool, but I didn't get to meet him. He didn't, you know, oft- oftentimes the big artists don't even come to the mixes. It's just the producer, I but see. I did meet miles because I was asked to come and record uh, live his uh, summer concert tour in Europe. And um, 
uh, that it opened with me meeting him uh, out on the grass where the first tour was the first uh, gig was to take place. And as I'm I've just been introduced to him and shook his hand, the tour manager comes up and says, Miles, the equipment didn't arrive from the States, but I've worked all day and I've got everybody. I've got everybody covered. We're going to it's going to be fine. And he looks at me, and goes, I don't want to do no blanking uh, tour with rented equipment cancel the show <gasps> and <clears throat> excuse me and we went back to the hotel together and go, still going up in the elevator to our rooms he was still bitching and moaning about how somebody screwed up and didn't get him didn't get the equipment there yeah i can imagine asking miles davis to play you know a rented uh, horn well, but no have- no but that's that's my point you know i, I was thinking it as I, we we're going up and what's the big deal you brought your own horn for god's sakes i mean you know what do you care if that, I think he just wanted out of it. You know, he was, this is oh, towards the end uh-huh. of his career and he was pretty cantankerous. <laughs> That's okay. And then one very final, real quick, cause we only have one minute left. You did Ringo Starr, but you met all the Beatles. Did you meet yeah, them? Yeah, that was the, the, the album that, uh, that Ringo did where it started with George Harrison and then they all chimed in. And uh, lo and behold, a week into it, I found myself in the studio with three Beatles, the first and only time they would play together after the breakup. They never played together again, the three of them. And the the saddest thing is that at that point in history, Paul McCartney had a drug bust in the United States and was not allowed to come in. But there's no doubt, because he wrote a song for Ringo as well, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have popped over and we could have had a Beatle reunion, but he couldn't come in the country. So we had to go to England to record his song. What was one of the songs from that? Maybe we'll go out on that one, Bill Schnee. Uh, Photograph is the biggest hit from that one. Oh, I love that and song. And by George Harrison. Wonderful. Bill Schnee, you are literally a walking uh, museum, a treasure trove of great, great stories about all of our favorite musicians. And so we'll just have to have you back on again. I mean, I think okay. that's the only way to, to fix this thing is to have you back on again. Bill Schnee, he has a website you can go to, which is just his name, com, And Schnee is spelled S-C-H-N-E-E, S-C-H-N-E-E, com. And don't forget, pick up his book if you want to hear all these stories and get goosebumps and laugh and uh, tears just uh, thinking about all these incredible uh, studio sessions that he has mastered and and indeed was nominated for so many awards for all of them. Bill Schnee, Chairman at the Board, is the book recording the soundtrack of a generation. Let's go out on photograph. Bill Schnee, thank you so much for being on The Way Home. You're thank a legend. You, You're Bye-bye. a legend. Okay, thank you so much. And here's Ringo Starr and the rest of the Beatles on photograph. You're listening to The Way Home.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Oh, that was so much fun. I feel like I just got a, boy, like a private look into like some of the most famous musicians in the world from Bill Schnee. Great, great guy. Great book, too. Chairman at the board. Recording the soundtrack of a generation. Absolutely love it. Uh, Pick your copy up for sure. Now we do what we do every week. We turn to our guru of good news. We've got uh, the the legend, uh, Bill Schnee, but we also have the legend, Jim Cleefield. He's here with nothing but good news stories to uplift us, to make us feel better. Jimmy Dean, what do you have for us this week? Well, I want to start with a wonderful story about a breast cancer survivor, a lady who uh, recently took a flight to Hawaii. But I must say, or you might say in this case, she didn't really need the plane to get to Hawaii because she was on the proverbial cloud nine. And I'll tell you why. Because she got one of the most wonderful surprises of her life. Not only did she beat breast cancer, by the way, congratulations to her. She got a shout out from the Southwest Airline crew while she was on that flight. She did not know this was coming. Her name is Gerald Oldham, and she was traveling with her husband and two other couples to Hawaii recently. And uh, apparently, Valerie Jones, who Instagrammed this, she made this all viral when the announcement went down. Her husband, Valerie's husband, notified the airline about this announcement that he wanted to make. Just to surprise the couple and to surprise her, boy, was she ever. And they made the announcement. And you can only imagine And the announcement. It went something like this with a pilot saying, uh, we'd like to say there's a special guest here with us today. She beat breast cancer. And, and on and on and on. We're very happy to have her. And I can imagine the applause that broke out. I mean, it must have been just an electric scene because, I mean, just it's a, to celebrate her victory. And it is a victory. No question about it. It's a victory for the human spirit, not just, not just for your health. But anyway, so the pilot said, it's nice in these difficult times that we can share a common bond together in a way we take care of each other everybody's family here and he said these last two words very appropriately the last two words welcome aboard people are so um supportive and and really and when they go out of their kind of their professional roles to do something like that it's very moving and very touching and i bet you she had a round of applause that lasted for most of her trip to Hawaii. No and doubt. Good for her. Wonderful, wonderful news. Always good to hear yeah. that. All right. And what else do you have for us, Jim? As if that wasn't enough. If that wasn't good enough, speaking of shout-outs, I'd like to make a shout-out personally to somebody. Well, I don't know him personally. I haven't met him. But he's a distinguished fellow Cushing Academy grad up here in the foothills of Massachusetts. Now, you may not know him personally, but you certainly know who he is as a celebrity. He's WWE star and actor Mr. John Cena, class of 95. And I'll tell you why, because he's been involved with something for 20 years now. The Make-A-Wish Foundation, we're all familiar with that. They deal with uh, wishes granting uh, to children with critical illnesses. He started this 20 years ago when he was in his third year as a professional wrestler. It's one of his greatest passions. Well, you know what he did? He made the Guinness Book of World Records. He not only broke the record for wishes granted, he flat out shattered it. 650 wishes granted since he started this back in 2002. And in fact, if you look at the record, uh, I mean, he granted his 500th wish back 10 years ago in 2012. He also uh, also gave the foundation's thousandth request uh, to a fan named uh, Cardin back years ago. And he just said, you know, he wanted to do this because, I mean, yes, I mean, he's a celebrity, big star, but he's very approachable, very, very nice guy from what I understand. I hope I'll meet him someday. He said to the foundation, look, whatever I'm doing, I'm there to help anybody. Just call me. I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing. He's been doing this for a long, long time, but that's not the only thing he's been involved with. Cena's also been involved uh, with an anti-bullying campaign you may have heard of this called Be a Star. 
Now, this is the anti-bullying campaign where you know he uh, tells you know kids uh, to through education and grassroots efforts and tolerance uh, to you know to be respectful of one another. And this has been just as successful. But to me, and what I see here. This Make-A-Wish Foundation is really the thing that's near and dear to his heart that's been going successful. So, yes, he's granted 650 wishes, but I'm telling you, if that's going to skyrocket, it'll probably double in the next few years for all I know. Just a, a tremendous all-around guy. Well, Jimmy Dean, I, I, for just saying, my two cents, I think you're pretty famous, too. Aww. And look at the good you do for the world. You go out and you find stories like that that make people feel so good and to, to restore their faith in humanity. So I think you're important as well. And also, you had a birthday this week. So I'm going to just shout it out now uh, on the airwaves. Happy birthday, my friend. Oh, thank you, love. <laughs> thank um, you. <laughs> and Bob, thank you always for uh, producing this show. I feel blessed to be here every week and and thank you so much to all of you for listening today we love you very much stay safe uh be well be healthy and lots of love from the way home i'm laura smith <laughs>